Welcome to another class, and thank you for joining us. The prophet Alma had a problem. The people were being fairly sinful, and so in Alma 5, he has to go to Zarahemla and preach repentance. Then he goes over to the city of Gideon and finds out instead that this is a righteous people. So he gets a chance to give them a little more doctrinal depth. He's going to tell them some things that they didn't know. In the process, he's going to teach us some things about what it means to be the Redeemer and about the Savior's mission and how it's specifically going to help them in terms of their infirmities. Join us for this wonderful discussion about the Alma's speech and working with the people of Gideon and the difference it made in their lives. And welcome to another Monday Morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, Opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within his pages. And now, on to the class. Okay, and welcome to our class today. Um, again, I, I want to apologize here. I always try to record this class in front of my class, uh, and we have a, a full chapel uh, here in, in, in Allen, Texas. But uh, for whatever reason, the last few weeks, I just have not liked the sound coming out of the microphone. There's too much distraction, so the sound has been really poor. So I apologize, and, and so rather than... Uh, play the recording that we made in front of the class, uh, it leads me to, to go ahead and kind of re-record the class a little bit uh, so that we're able to talk about the things we're trying to talk about, but without some of the, the uh, noise distractions that would have just driven you nuts, drove me nuts, so I assume it would drive you nuts as well. But thank you for listening in, and thank you for being here. Okay, so uh, in our last class, we were talking about... Uh, uh, Alma's speech in Alma 5. And remember, he's got a, a city in uh, Zarahemla, and these guys are just uh, struggling. Uh, he says they were in a, an awful dilemma, is Alma's term. And so he's going to work hard with them, and because of that, he's going to try and preach the gospel to them and call them to repentance. Remember that Alma 5, he asked 50 questions, trying to get to the root of what it is that uh, is going on uh, with them, and apparently it works. We get that in Alma six, that there was the the uh, reclamation project, uh, that big reformation. We're trying to get it all done. That worked, and so they're good. So then he's going to leave them, and his next city on uh, his tour uh, is going to be this, the people in Gideon. Remember that uh, Gideon are the group of uh, people in Gideon uh, are apparently doing much better. So when we look at, we go to Alma 7, 
and he's going to say, hey, I've been permitted to come unto you that I might address you in my own language, really meaning you get to hear by my own mouth. Uh, It's the first time he's been able to do that because, remember, he had to give up the uh, judgment seat uh, so that he would have time uh, to go ahead and talk to them, even though he's still the, the high priest. And his worry is that he's going to uh, find him in the same place, but at the same uh, same place of wickedness. But he says, you know what? I had great hopes and much desire that I should find that you'd humbled yourselves and you weren't in that awful dilemma that our brethren were in Zarahemla. Now, as it turns out, he, he finds out that they are righteous. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. This is kind of important. Because it's the difference in what a prophet is able to preach and reveal to an audience. And we have, we have two groups, one in, in Zarahemla in Alma 5, and we have a righteous group in Alma 7 in the people of Gideon. And here's the difference that I, that I can see in this. In Alma 5, where, they're in repentance, where they need repentance, all he can do is preach repentance to them. When he gets a chance to talk to the people in Gideon, on the other hand, they're not needing quite so much uh, fire and brimstone. And really kind of what they're needing then is to be inspired. And in order to do that, he's able to reveal more doctrine to them uh, of a deeper level and more import to them. And so Alma 7 has a lot more information that he gave to the people than he was able to give to them in uh, Zarahemla. So as we're looking at this, he's going to say that uh, he, he's really grateful. He says, I'm grateful you didn't trust your hearts on riches. I'm really grateful you're not worshiping idols uh, and that you're then now in a place because you're doing that. You're now in a place uh, that you can look forward to a remission of your sins with an everlasting faith. Why look forward? Well, he says there's a time coming that the Redeemer is coming. Uh, this is about, this is in the 80s B.C., so he's about 80 years away. But he's going to say in verse 7, there's one thing of more importance than all of this, and that is that there is a time not far distance, about 80 years, that the Redeemer liveth and cometh among the people. Now, that word Redeemer gives us a chance to look at something for just a second. If you talk to historians, historians will tell you that uh, the, the past is a, is a foreign country. They looked at things different. They, they saw different things. You know, when, when we talk uh, at Christmas time and we sing, uh, Don We Now Are Gay Apparel, well, gay apparel has changed in meaning uh, in the last few decades since that song was written. Uh, gay means completely something different. Language changes over time. It comes to mean different things based on the people that are looking at that. And this is actually one of those times, because I want to take a second and look at the word redeemer. What does it mean to redeem? Now, if you actually go back to uh, Old Testament times, to, for the people in the Old Testament, when, when you read the word redeem in Old Testament, 
if, and you look at the meaning of it, it's going to really mean it's an act of deliverance, primarily by a kinsman or a family member. Okay, think about like Leverite marriages, where if if the husband dies, then the brother comes in, and he's going to uh, have children with uh, his brother's widow so that they can continue to have seed if necessary. At the very least, he's going to take care of her, take care of that family. But that means that meant to them redemption was an act of deliverance. And this was mostly done by kinsmen taking care of their own. I'm going to rescue you from an impossible situation. And so in that case, to redeem is to deliver, to deliver. Look at how the word has changed, though. By the time we get to Joseph Smith's time, like if we look in uh, uh, the word redeem in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary, the word redeem has a whole different connotation because now it means, quote, to purchase back, to ransom by pain or by pain an equivalent. Somebody has stolen your daughter and you will pay the ransom to get her back. Now, that is so that idea of redeem and we see it in kind of a a penal substitution, paying for sins, purchasing that we are purchased all of that. Uh, is really an idea that is not as salient in the Old Testament because they saw it primarily as deliverance. Uh, but by the time we get through the Middle Ages and then into the Reformation, redeem has changed quite a bit. So when, so we're, when we're looking at the King James Version that was written by the King James uh, Committee in about 1099 A.D., if they're going to translate a word from the Greek and they're going to use the word ransom, ransom for them has more of a financial connotation. Now, I have to admit that I like, I like the older version better because sometimes when we've talked about redemption, redemption for Calvin and the Reformers was that most of the people that need to be redeemed aren't worth it. They're just, un, just ungodly creatures. And yet God's going to fill them with his righteousness, impugned righteousness, it was called, so that they could be rescued and uh, saved in spite of themselves, in spite of their sins, in, si in spite of their wicked nature. The idea of redemption as an act of deliverance seems to be more of a loving act by those that are rescued not because they're sinful, but they're rescued because he loves them and he wants to rescue them from situation. So, so let me give you a, another example on this, on this idea of the Redeemer. If we look in the King James Version, we look under Exodus 6. So it's in Exodus, so this is Moses, and he's trying to get the people out of Egypt. And he's, and so... Uh, the King James Version of Exodus 6 says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from all the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you. And the, the Hebrew word is ka'al. 
I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. Now, even that Exodus version we're reading there is still coming through the the editors of the King James Version, so it still has very much a scene redeeming in a different frame. So this is one of those times, guys, that I like to be able to go to uh, uh, like the Aramaic. And so the Aramaic isn't drawing from the Latin. The Aramaic is drawn directly from the Greek more, and you get a flavor of maybe how this was more seen originally. So the Aramaic of Exodus 6 says, I am the Lord Jehovah, your God, and I bring you out of bondage. And I will save you by a mighty hand and a high arm and great judgment. So instead of redeeming with all of its baggage, the Aramaic says, no, I will save you. I will deliver you. Well, that's, that's a beautiful way to, to take a look at this. Uh, and so, so what that's trying to tell us then uh, is that it really kind of opens the door. If, if what the Savior has done for us is more about deliverance and not so much about paying a price or a high cost and all of those kind of things, it causes us to look at things just a little bit different. Now, I'm, I'm indebted to uh, Jared Halverson uh, and the talk that he gave at the Redeem Conference. And he's going to talk about, uh, and, and I'm going to rely a little bit on his framing of how we're going to see this. But Bruce R. McConkie back in the day talked about uh, the three pillars of the plan of salvation. And I'm going to reframe that just a little bit and call these the three pillars of the atonement. If, if the power of the atonement goes from uh, the preexistence all the way to the celestial kingdom, and that is the power that drives everything, these are the three pillars that, that drive this. But the word atonement is another one that we have used and with an idea towards the penal substitution and, and the ransom and cost and all that. Look at how this is framed. The three pillars of the atonement. And there are three pillars. One is the creation, the fall, and reconciliation. The creation, the fall, and the reconciliation. And you're going to watch this pattern cycle through. God is one eternal round. It's going to go around and around and around. So let's, let's take this for just a second. Uh, we have Adam and Eve in the garden in their creation mo part of their life. And in this creation process, they're learning, they're learning new animals, they're seeing things around them, uh, they're learning things from God. This is a creative period of time. This is great. Uh, they're able to uh, just pluck fruit off the ground or off the trees. This is, this is wonderful. It's not taking a lot of exertion. Uh, life in, in uh, the Garden of Eden is pretty great. And they're learning all the time. This is wonderful. Here's the problem, of course, and you know this. Uh, Lehi is going to say, yeah, things were great in the Garden of Eden, but they couldn't have any joy because they knew no misery. They knew no sin, therefore they couldn't have joy. So we know that they needed to move from the creative 
part of their lives, however long they lived in the Garden of Eden, that they needed to fall. They needed to fall out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, and uh, as Latter-day Saints, we may be the only ones who see this as a fortunate fall, that this was a good thing. We're glad they did it. This was a fortunate fall. So they're going to come out of the creative part of their life, and then they're going to fall into the fall part of their lives. Well, when you fall out of that creative part, now you're landing in a world where you make mistakes, you have doubts, you, you do the wrong things. I suspect, for instance, that after the fall, uh, Adam probably messed up some of his crops. Uh, Eve would have thought, uh, it's good that we're finally leaving Garden of Eden, now I can have kids. And she starts having kids, but A, the, <laughs> the labor and delivery was far harder than she had any idea. And two, she has these great kids and then they go south and they go bad and suddenly having kids isn't nearly as much. In the fall part of our life, there is a lot of doubts and a lot of worries. We make mistakes, we do stupids, uh, we, we go down roads that we shouldn't have, we have to double back. Uh, the fall is a messy time and a messy stretch in our life. It was wonderful in the creation. We needed to fall, but in the fall, things go badly. And we're going to struggle with all of that. Now, with Adam and Eve, we know that there was, uh, after about two generations, they're actually visited by an angel who asked them why they're sacrificing, and they're not sure. They have forgotten the reasons why they're sacrificing. And the angel is going to give them knowledge and understanding uh, about why they did it and is and they're going to be able to feel the spirit at that sacrifice and this is this becomes the reconciliation part of the atonement they are about to be re-reconciled reacquainted with god uh, after all of the struggles of the fall and at the end of that uh, doctrinal explanation and training by the angel uh, Eve's going to look around and say, it was good that we fell because never, we never would have known the joy of our redemption. And she just gives this wonderful speech as part of the reconciliation. So now as part of that, she can actually then cycle back around, which is what you do. She's going to go from the reconciliation back to the creation again. She can, she's going to create more. She's going to have Cain and Abel. She's going to see things differently and now she's back to learning and growing and and all of that at some point along the line there will be another fall she will make mistakes uh, things will go south and she will need the reconciliation that comes from knowledge and understanding from the gospel and from heaven creation fall reconciliation and it goes around and around and around now here's the cool part about this is that just like Adam and Eve, all through our lives, we have this same cycle in place. We'll have the creation, and then we'll have, uh, at those moments, and a lot of times this comes in school. Maybe we understand middle school and we're in a good place, and then we're creative and everything, and then we fall into high school. And we're doing high school and, and all of that. And then we finally graduate. We're reconciled. We've completed all of this. And then we're going to go to 
college or off to training and we're back in our cre the creative stage and we're being creative and we're learning and we're growing and then we start failing some classes or we struggle with our major or we start dating and that doesn't go well and we go from the creation to the fall and at some point then we need the reconciliation of the Savior to pick us back up. Uh, it's, uh, somebody in the class mentioned that what we're looking at is classic literature that all literature involves these three things the creation the fall and the reconciliation all the great heroes and all the stories whether it was lord of the rings or star wars or huckleberry finn or the journeys of sinbad there's always a creative stage where they're learning there's a fall stage where they're making mistakes there's a reconciliation where they now understand and then they move back to creation again we just go around and around okay and and the reason why we want to take a look at this when when we're talking about Alma, because you're probably wondering why are we doing this? Um, the nice thing about this stage is that it's in this reconciliation stage that the Savior is able to be our redeemer, meaning our deliverer. He's going to deliver us from the effects of the fall. Now, the the fall again is our doubts. The fall is our mistakes, and, and, the, and the reconciliation is that knowledge that comes to us that helps us heal from the effects of the fall and then set, sets us on another path where we can start a crea another creative part of our life. And the Redeemer, the Deliverer, is the key. It's the one that, he's the one that provides the reconciliation so that things are going to get better. Now, if we go back, for instance, to uh, Alma 7, uh, Alma is going to talk about uh, the power of the Redeemer, and he's saying, yeah, you need to repent because it's coming close by, and then he's going to start giving them some information that they didn't have previous to this. Uh, he's going to say, behold, this Redeemer, uh, behold, he's going to, this is verse 10, Behold, he shall be born of Mary. I'm going to give you some new information. At Jerusalem, in the land of our forefathers, and she's going to be a precious and chosen vessel, and she'll be overshadowed and conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, let's stop for just a second. This is kind of interesting, because one of the things that you're going to hear from Alma is he's going to provide... Uh, this information about the fact that uh, Jesus is going to be born uh, near Jerusalem. But interestingly enough, he just before that, he was going to say, you know what? I don't know whether he's going to come among us during his mortal ministry or whether that will be after. And he'll say in verse 8, as to this thing, I do not know. Now, the beautiful thing for prophets is that they also go through these three steps, creation, fall, and reconciliation. During the creative stages, a prophet is growing and learning the gospel and then giving the responsibility of, of uh, being prophet. Okay? Now, do prophets fall? Well, prophets, uh, 
are going to have periods of time when they things they don't know. If the fall is a period of doubt and, and times of uh, learning and understanding what we don't know, then yes, prophets fall in the sense that there are times that they don't know. And for Alma, he's saying, you know what, I love the, I love the idea of the Redeemer, but I don't know whether he's going to come across this in his mortal life. Now, fascinatingly enough, by the way, Nephi knew this and, and taught it that he wouldn't come during mortality, but somehow that information didn't get to Alma. Uh, Alma also, later in the Book of Mormon, will tell us that he doesn't know what happens immediately after death. Alma's not afraid to say, I don't know, and I have to ask, I don't know. Well, part of what leads us to reconciliation while we're in the fall period is asking. We have to ask to receive the reconciliation. Alma says, I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. Now, I have to admit that I love the idea that uh, one of the things that President Nelson has stressed is that the restoration is continuing. What that means is that things are still being restored to the brethren and to saints everywhere, things that we didn't previously know. It can't be restored to us if we already knew it. A restoration means we're being taught things that we had to ask, had to find out, and then we then once we know, now we can move forward. Uh, but we didn't know. We were in that fall period of that part of our knowledge. So Alma's going to tell us a prophets don't know things, and they have to ask just like everybody else which really means that we are part of a living church again and that each successive generation of church leaders and prophets learn from the experiences of the prophets previous to them. <laughs> you know, I have to admit that when I was younger, I kind of believed in the old idea that this every prophet got a kind of the knowledge dump. <laughs> they, they become a, a prophet and somewhere in there there's an upload to them and they now know what every other prophet knew. Uh, that's not true. They they have to ask and and try and get knowledge and understanding just like the rest of us, which is kind of comforting, I think. Okay, now here's part of what he's going to tell us, though. Here's here's what's been revealed to Alma as as he asks. He says, okay, he's going to come in, in a few years. He's going to live his mortal life. I don't know if he's going to be here at that time, uh, but he'll come. And and he says in verse eleven, and I always call this the the big gulp scripture, Alma 7:11, And he shall go forth, suffering pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, and this that the word might be fulfilled, that saith that he will take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people. Now, I take that in two ways, this pains and sicknesses. On one level... Well, before I say that, let me just mention, when he says he will take upon him the pains and sicknesses of his people, what did you expect to hear there? Don't we usually expect to say, and this that it might be fulfilled, and he will take upon him the sins of the world. That's what we expect, and that's what we find elsewhere. In this case, he's going to say, no, nah, he's going to take upon him the pains and sicknesses of the people. So I understand this in two pieces. One, 
in talking about he's going to take upon him the pains and sicknesses of the people, what a beautiful way to explain sin. If, if in this case, taking upon him the pains and sicknesses is a synonym for sin, then pains and sicknesses describes really well what happens when somebody is breaking commandments. There's a pain and there's a sickness, a spiritual sickness that needs healing, not punishment. Secondly, uh, taken at a more uh, literal level, you're right when it says he'll take upon him pains and sickness. He doesn't mention sin, and the other uh, explanation of this might be, no, he's going to literally take on pains and sicknesses. In addition to the sins, he's also taking on pains and sicknesses. Um, in D&C 61, uh, the Lord is going to say, Behold and hearken, ye elders of my church, uh, and listen to Jesus Christ, your advocate. And then he says, Who knoweth the weakness of man, and how to succor them that are tempted. So he's going to say, part of how he's going to advocate is that he succors, S-U-C-C-O-R, he succors, takes care of, heals, works with infirmities whether that regardless of what that if that infirmity is about sin or if simply about weaknesses of uh, procrastination or or uh, depression or whatever that is he's going to find he's going to go through all of this mortality so that he may know according to the flesh how to succor his people according to their infirmities now, notice the other thing that's, missed, that's uh, not there. You might say, so that he knows how to succor and heal or remove his people according to their infirmities. He's not really saying that. Sometimes he does. Sometimes there is healing and removal of those things. But by and large, what he's saying is he's going to know how to succor, meaning to comfort, to mourn with, to take care of, to walk with us in our infirmities, which won't be taken from us. They will continue to be something that we struggle with. And, and because of that, um, he's going to be able to walk with us. And now I believe that it, when we go back to the three pillars we were just talking about, the creation, the fall, and the reconciliation, that that suckering that he will do for us is part of the reconciliation. In the midst of our struggles and our pains and our doubts, he's going to say, rather than reject you, rather than wait in the wings until you're finally done with this struggle, I'm going to walk with you. I want to help you in the things that you are doing here. And that's suckering. And I will know that because I know that... Uh, you're having pain and heartache. Uh, I know that you had a loss. Well, somewhere in Joseph's life, uh, he lost Joseph, uh, his sur surrogate father. He, he watched his, main, his mom struggle with her death, with his death. He went through that, so he's gone through mourning. He, he saw people that he loved um, killed or die. So he's been through there, but he, so he says, because of that, let me walk with you. Let me be part of that 
let me help out that by that by so doing we'll be able to uh, help you to to uh, make it through that I will help you reconcile so we can get you back to the creation process again um, and Isaiah is going to say uh, in Isaiah 53 surely he hath borne our griefs our diseases and carried our sorrows and yes he was bruised for our transgression but he's also bearing our griefs and our diseases and sorrows he learned how to succor us and part of what Alma is trying to say to his people in Gideon is the time is coming when he's going to be born and he will be the deliverer uh, Christ the deliverer and he's going to know how to succor his people and, and in, in fact he will say that in verse 13 uh, He'll be here so that he can blot out their transgressions according to the power of his deliverance. And this is the testimony which is in me. So part of what I find powerful here is the idea of, as he's trying to help them understand uh, what's going to happen in their life, he's going to help them see, I think, that there is a period of time when they struggle, they have sorrows, and they're in the fall period of their life. And then the Savior is going to step in to help them in the reconciliation part of their life that will help move them back to creative, creative meaning I'm going to take the new knowledge I learned from my suckering and create a different life, create something more powerful and stronger uh, than, than what it was before. So, uh, in closing, I love the fact that Alma, as he is coming into Gideon, instead of having to focus on repentance, gets to focus on providing new knowledge and understanding, focusing on helping them see more clearly than what they were, and, and by so doing, that he's going to be able to help them stay in the more creative periods of their life rather than wallow and struggle at times when they fall, <laughs> which they're going to kind of do a lot anyway uh, and he's just trying to, to uh, fire them up to be able to do that well brothers and sisters I, I bear you my testimony that there is great power in these three pillars of the atonement there's great power in seeing the cycles and the and the the divine circle and wholeness of God in helping us grow by walking us through these stages and that by so doing, we put ourselves constantly in a place then to be delivered, to be loved, and to be rescued from the things that we struggle with. I pray that the Lord can bless us in this and be able to take to heart those things that Alma taught so long ago and st are still so incredibly relevant. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. And thank you for joining us for another Monday morning class. Hope you enjoyed it. If you have any suggestions about future topics that we could discuss, or if you had any questions concerning something that you heard in the class, please drop us a note. We'd love to hear from you. As always, if you happen to be in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, please come in and join us on a Monday morning. We'd love to see you and identify who you are. If the podcast itself is resonating with you, go ahead and click subscribe 
uh, so that Apple can figure out where we are. We'd love to, to hear from you. So again, thank you for coming, and we'll see you for another Monday morning class.